Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Dr. David Morehouse. Uh, the last episode, we talked about his uh, life change that happened in Jordan Valley when he was uh, shot in a, with a, in the head, basically. Um, and we ended with his interview with a psychologist in a military intelligence unit in Virginia, right? Yeah, a special access program. Uh, yeah, a special access program in Virginia. And he was being interviewed and was presented documentation for a grill flame. So with that, we're going to start with um, once you receive those documents, what did you learn? Well, you know, being in this special access program, and it was my first one. Uh, as I, as we discussed in the last episode, there are a lot lots of things that were going on there that were quite odd and outside my normal purview as a as a as an army captain coming out of you know having commanded both a ranger company which i considered special operations and it is uh and an airborne rifle company and now i'm standing here uh telling this guy that i'm having out-of-body experiences and i had this vision after i get zinged in the helmet by a machine gun bullet and uh he hands me these three, four blue folders and says, I would give me, give me your thoughts on these tomorrow. So I go back to my office, which is just one, one door down and uh, in the hallway and we're in a skiff. So I sit there and I start reading these things and it's clear in the text, which is a transcript. Uh, and there's a statement of, you know, like a mission and coordinates and those kinds of things that are on there. And, Grill flame is stamped at the top and bottom, secret, et cetera. And then it is clear that the, the, the two people that are talking or responding to each other are referred to by numbers, not names, <clears throat> uh, which that is the first time I'd seen that. So now they're referred to as a number. And it's clear that one person is directing the other person, and the other person is describing things not in the same physical location that the two individuals are talking. Because one person is asking the other person, okay, are you here or are you there? Okay, turn left and go that way. Describe what you see there. Um, that person giving directions, I found out later, was called a monitor. And the mm -hmm. other person was being called a viewer. But they wouldn't say that. They obviously didn't say that there. They called them sources. Uh, and so... The thing that intrigued me was sketches. And what I was looking at uh, is these are the remote viewing sessions that were done in support of the Iranian hostage rescue attempt. Uh, there were a stack of them that were done, but I was looking at the ones he pulled out the hand to me. Uh, why were remote viewers being used in this particular mission? It's because the U.S. government had no intel on the actual embassy itself. So as Delta was at Dugway, Pro you know, Dugway Proving Grounds planning this mission, uh, the mission to go in with the helicopters, et cetera, and, and Delta, and to, uh, and to extract the hostages with a combat operation, and with some rangers as well, <clears throat> uh, they didn't have knowledge of what the floor plan was. The floor plans were, were there at the embassy. And so, and everybody knew what the floor plans were, what the image, embassy actually looked like. It was a hostage. 
stairways down, stairways up. Where might where might they hold hostages? Are there windows? They didn't even know what which windows had been bulletproof blast and which ones hadn't. They didn't know which way doors open, where all the stairways were, anything. All the people that knew that were there. They were now hostages. The rest of the people in the Department of State, which I'm sure that problem has been remedied now, if that were ever to happen again. But in those days, you know, the idea that somebody would go on, uh, you know, that's uh, that's that's actually what do they call it? That's U.S. soil you know, in Iran. That's how that's looked at. So they never thought that anybody would go and take the embassy down. I'm not sure why. I mean, they certainly did it in, in Saigon, right? <laughs> they did that, but we were planning on leaving anyway. Another story. But so uh, they didn't have that intel. So they had three sources of intel. One was human intelligence, meaning that there were people on the ground attempting to look and find stuff, but there was really no way for them to get in and get you know really good actionable intelligence that could be used by uh, by Delta as they were planning a raid. They used a lot of Ted Koppel uh, footage. Ted Koppel had Nightline, you know, where he would go in and he was interviewing Iranian guards and other things. And what started happening is they were strategically positioning the, you know, the interviewer, Ted Koppel, and the camera so that they were getting long shots of the building and other things that helped them build a picture of what was going on there. But they were also... Who was... Who was- strategically positioning the interview it was like ted koppel working with the cia or the there had to be, or yeah there had to be somebody either talking to him or there had to be somebody on the ground who was receiving information passing it on to him and and while i know a, a report most reporters would like to say well we try to remain neutral i think in that particular case uh, there was really no neutrality. He was a source, right? I don't think I don't think there's ever been, to be honest with you. But that's you know, again, I'm a cynical. I have a cynical mind. Uh, but they were using that to try to get an idea and kind of build their own models to say, okay, it could be here, could be there. But there's still so many blind spots in this, and so they were using remote viewers. They didn't know they were using remote viewers, but remote. Viewers- so, so for the audience, for the audience, for those who are unfamiliar. Very, very succinctly, I know you have a pretty succinct definition. What is remote viewing? Well, remote viewing defined by the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency in, in short terms is the learned ability to transcend space-time to view persons, places, or things remote in space-time to gather and report intelligence information on the same. That was kind of the single, you know, single line, single sentence definition of what it was, the learned ability to transcend space-time to view persons, places, or things remote in space-time and to gather and report intelligence information on the same. That's what a remote viewer was. Uh, we'll talk more, I guess, uh, about how that came about, but that's what I was looking at. I, I didn't know that at the time, but I'm looking at this. And the probably the most in- intriguing thing of the night, because I kept pouring over these and reading them and going reading them again, looking at the sketches and reading them again, uh, and I just picked up the phone and called my wife and said, you know, I, I won't be home tonight. I have a lot of work to do. I read through the night, uh, just reading and rereading and pondering and trying to wonder, you know, thinking about what this could possibly be. Because, you know, the very first go through on it, I read this. There was a picture of stairways down. There was a, not picture, a sketch drawn by the remote viewer of stairways down to a manhole cover and a door. 
And uh, where that corresponded in the transcription is this person who was the monitor says to the viewer, are you outside where you're supposed to be now? And the viewer, by number only, I'm labeling them now. The viewer says, I am. And the monitor says, okay, pass through the wall and describe the contents of the room. Now, we're not talking about somebody physically passing the wall. This is a, we'll talk more about what that really is, but in the mind of the viewer, their perception is they're now passing through the wall. And then there's a sketch showing the room, like you're looking up above, looking down this large room. And that's the sketch that accompanies that as this person goes through there and their perception changes. Now you're seeing this big, wide open room that says elevators over here and guard desk here and that kind of stuff. This was the precisely the kind of intelligence I, you know, that they wanted back is, you know, they, they wanted it to come back. Now I trust me, I don't know how much credence they gave it, but, but they didn't know the source, but as an, as an Intel customer requesting for that information, when it's pushed back to them, they certainly consider it. And Although it's not 100% accurate, never has been, but it's accurate to a degree that it bears consideration to see where it fits into the puzzle, right? Of what they know or what they don't know. And there were locks drawn by remote viewers, you know, locks that had uh, Arabic writing on them. And there were, you know, position, you know, shown positions of, of heavy weapons, right? Uh, cruiser weapons, 50 cal, 50 cal, 50 cal, armored vehicles, uh, aircraft, the helicopter landed here and took off. All these different kinds of things are being put in to this, these reports after they're doing session after session after session. A session is approximately 60 minutes to 90 minutes of work in an altered state of consciousness, but we'll talk about that more. But that's what a remote viewer is doing. And then there's exchange between monitor and viewer, and then the viewer is you know, doing these memory sketches, they were called back then. Uh, and that stuff was being pulled together and sent off. Uh, that was powerful for me to read that. I mean, because I ask anybody, okay, so you're, you're setting, you're sitting in a top secret program, clandestine program, sitting in a skiff, you're reading classified material in front of you. We were actually reading a sentence where somebody tells a guy to pass through the wall and describe the contents of the room. I mean, all of the other things were, you know, quite intriguing as well, but that one always sticks in my mind as kind of the trigger for holy cow, you know, seriously. Yeah, because you had no context, right? It could be, you could, the first thing that popped in your mind, it might be somebody physically passing through a wall, yeah. right? Yeah. And I was also trying to piece it together thinking, uh, well, this psychologist, uh, you know, doing what he was doing, maybe, you know, maybe he was showing me something else. Like maybe he was relating it to out-of-body experiences. So I'm thinking, okay, well, is this like some apparitional, you know, phantom form that's there moving through the wall? Or well, yeah, that's actually an important distinction because many, at least when I was first learning about the remote viewing, I confused the two. I thought that remote yeah. viewing was like an out-of-body thing, and it's not. It's... Yeah, if you could just very quickly say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that people think remote viewing is. And I mean, after the publication of my book on the subject, um, it was the first exposure of 
uh, of this military intelligence collection tool to the to the world. And it was the first exposure to relating it and linking it to CIA, the DIA Directorate of Technology and Science. And I did that for a specific purpose. There was a there was a definite decision process that I went through in 1993 when I decided to write the book. Uh, you tell me when you would want me to talk about that, but when I put that forward, uh, suddenly the term remote viewing, because it did lend a degree of credibility because despite you know, the tractors, there were all sorts of articles in Washington Post and everywhere else talking about what it did, you know, what it didn't do, but what it did. Uh, you had people like Jessica Utz, a PhD a physicist, you know, doing an analysis on uh, what the CIA released to her. Uh, that's out there online. And she came back and said, uh, it, it, uh, this is well beyond chance. This is quite, you know, uh, this is quite amazing, and it cannot be, it cannot be dismissed. Uh, even Joe Nichols, who is one of the guys that formed PSYCOP, which is this, oh, I can't remember what PSYCOP is. It's uh, something that has something to do with, uh, these are, these are uh, uh, guys that attack uh, anybody that's working in the realm of, you know, psychic phenomena or something else. And these guys, uh, let me see, came back and, and said, Joe Nichol, after reviewing exactly what uh, Jessica Utz reviewed, uh, came back and said the same. He would not say, okay, well, this, this changes my perspective on this stuff. No, what he did was he came back and he looked at it and he said, okay. He goes, it's, it is completely outside the realm of any of the things that I would normally be able to see and dispute or, 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 you know, or disprove or uh, anything else in the realm of what I do. So clearly the data sets that they have produced uh, weren't consideration and cannot be dismissed. Basically what Jessica had said. Uh, that was Joe Nichols, uh, who has a PhD in psychology from, I think, Harvard or Johns Hopkins, uh, but he is used to be a, a stage magician, as many of the guys in Psychops did, which is a which is a flaw in their process because their process of debunking, you know, anything that anybody does in that realm says, well, if I can develop a trick, you know, and it replicates it to duplicate what you're doing, then your what you're doing must be an illusion. That's flawed thinking, right? That's mm -hmm. absolutely flawed thinking uh, because just because something can be duplicated, I mean, Hollywood can duplicate anything, right? So it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist elsewhere in, in, in reality, but that's their thinking. And Joe Nichols was stumped. He couldn't turn around and just dismiss the remote viewing program. So again, after the book Psychic Warrior gets released, everybody is looking for some, they think, okay, remote viewing, CIA, all this stuff, it, it gives them a degree of now a foundational credibility they can stand on if they use that term. Uh, and it happened. So remote viewing now became like this overarching umbrella where somebody who was, you know, doing, you know, energy medicine or 
uh, you know, shaman, you know, uh, people doing ayahuasca trips, uh, you name it, uh, sixth sense, present, you know, anything, intuitism, uh, intuition. Everybody was, you know, you had people stepping up and go, well, yeah, I'm a, you know, trans medium and a remote viewer. <laughs> what? Okay. You know, it, so everybody was using it, even people that were just genuinely, let's say, clairvoyant, clairaudient, clairsentient, uh, you know, those things are real things that happen under the umbrella of ESP or spiritual phenomena or psychic phenomena, uh, whatever you want to put it, paranormal, pheno paranormal phenomena. Those are large umbrella terms under which all these other things exist. Actually, there are 72 other things. Uh, one of those 72 other things is remote viewing. Remote viewing is not up at the top. It doesn't cover all the rest. It has a, it is a specific dogma, a deliberate dogma that must be followed, a protocol with rules uh, that guide you through the protocol. Uh, it requires, you know, the process of detecting, decoding, and objectifying. Uh, there are rules that define how you do what you're doing. Uh, and it has a, it has a dedicated lexicon that's applied to it. So, and it was born in science, built in science, applied as a military intelligence collection tool for decades, and still is being used today, because they certainly did not shut down this prog program and uh, the capability and everything that was going on in 20 years of research at SRI International. They certainly didn't shut all that down because. One guy wrote a book. Mm -hmm. Expose it, right? But they tried to discredit it too, though. Like the CIA oh, tried to yeah. tried to say, well, what you know, its success rate was lower than it's not. You know, it's good. Yeah, which, which after thirty five years of use to turn around and start dismissing it as worthless to you, uh, it, it it was pretty funny, especially since you had guys in the CIA, which I can quote for you that we're basically turning around and going, if you're ignoring this as a capability, you're basically pretty stupid. This is really amazing. I mean, they're like mm -hmm. spot on with stuff. Uh, you know, there's a, one of my former colleagues throws around a letter that came out of, uh, out of uh, somewhere in the Department of the Army, out of the Pentagon, where somebody ran a test trying to determine, they thought a good test for this would be to prove that remote viewers could not determine which missile, I mean, which missile silo actually had missile intercontinental ballistic missiles in them? Because as you know, they move them around, right? So there may be empty silos and then there's a silo with a weapon in it. Uh, and in the test, in the memorandum that is there, uh, the, the remote viewers found it 100% of the time. They found where the rockets were. Uh, and so everybody was like, okay, and then you have guys like Stansfield Turner, who, you know, former director of the CIA, said, turned around mm -hmm. and said, as it was being developed, right? I don't care if it's 6% accurate. I don't care if it's 6% accurate. If it's 6% accurate information that I, that I cannot glean by any other intelligence collection asset, it's intelligence dollars well spent. But it was far greater than that, as, as you found out, uh, as everybody that investigated it found out. But, it was at least 10 times that, right? 60% oh, of the time at least? Yeah. I mean, viewers can sometimes be upwards in the, in the 80s and sometimes in the 90 percentile and looking at a particular target. But every viewer <clears throat> has different modalities of perception. In other words, strengths and weaknesses and how they... But by the way, the most successful stock pickers are 60%. 
Yeah. Like, more, like world class, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I mean, that brings up an excellent point. I mean, uh, after this was, after this was released and we, and the book came out and people started teaching it, uh, former colleagues started teaching it. And of course, also, despite all of the, uh, animosity and vitriol and everything else that came out, because I was, look guys, I was, when I got there, when I was recruited into the program by this psychologist who, after giving me those folders, you know, he started a limited read-on with, with me, giving me more folders, more folders, asking more questions, more folders, more questions. And he was testing to find out whether or not I was an individual who was potentially capable of being trained or not, right? He was in an assessment role. And I don't even know if, if Colonel Lackey knew that he was kind of a recruiter, you know, looking around for who might be good for this. But he was. And so I ended up being taken there. And then uh, unbeknownst to Colonel Lackey and Colonel Glass, who was the deputy commander or anybody else, my boss. And when I go there and I sit down for the interview process, when I'm, you know, I'm, I sat down. And, well, first of all, when you go into the building, say, and I'll give you pictures, Sean, you can put up there. They are these dilapidated World War II barracks buildings, right? I mean, the the shingles on the top of them are all cupped up like baloney, you know, on a on a hot pan, and the paint's peeling off. And but there's a giant security door on the front of this thing, <laughs> and there are security screens on all the windows. But there's a giant security door with a push button lock combo on it. So uh, it gets the door gets knocked on, and this uh, this uh, secretary opens it. Name was Jeannie. And we come in, and the first thing I notice when I look around is I see this giant painting of a of a galaxy on the wall, a painting of the galaxy with you know red gaseous clouds and stuff on the whole wall in like a seating area. And uh, the psychologist brings me over and says, "Have a seat." Uh, and then he's going to go talk to the program director, whose name was Fern Gavin. And uh, while that's happening some of the remote viewers, which again, I didn't know what they were. I didn't even heard the term yet. Uh, one of them comes over and gets me. I can't remember which one it was, but takes me around to meet everybody. And, you know, you got Lynn Buchanan, who was there, who's now written, he's written his own book about it. Uh, he's in his stocking feet and he's like this, you know, kind of, slightly overweight non-commissioned officer, E7, I think, uh, Intel guy, right? Uh, worked in IT. And uh, I, he introduces himself. He goes back and sits on this, you know, the kneeling chairs, right? For your back as he's working mm -hmm. on a computer. Uh, I meet another guy who's, you know, there. Uh, who I mentioned the Galaxy and he goes, oh yeah, me and another guy painted that. Uh, that, that was Paul Smith, I believe. And uh, I met Gabrielle Pettengale. Uh, she was uh, a former army officer, now an uh, intel officer, now a, a civilian. Uh, and then I, I end up going to the other room. They take me in the back room. It was Ed Dames took, was leading me around. And Ed Dames brought me around to the back room. And in the back room, this is where the smokers existed. So there was like this cloud that went, you know, 
good 36 inches down from the ceiling of smoke. And you go in there because Mel Riley was the first person I met there. And Mel Riley was this guy with kind of these sad, you know, uh, gray eyes uh, looking back at you, pure white hair like mine now, uh, but thin. And uh, he had behind him like Indian uh, craft stuff, like, like tomahawks in a, Oh, like the Amer Native American, yeah. Tech, yeah, he was a huge Native American uh, aficionado. In fact, he had been brought into the powwows and the sacred dances because he was so capable of you know, doing what he did. Plus his first vision ever that, that brought him on that trail to get there was as a young man walking through a field in Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, and when he walked through the field, he began to smell the smoke of a fire, a campfire. Uh, he began to hear dogs barking and horses uh, uh, whinnying, or, or, and, and he heard voices. And as he kept walking, just taking that in, not really being frightened, but, but feeling that's weird. When he got to the other side of the clearing, he said that he turned around and he saw this village, this Indian village with the teepees and all the things and that became his first connection as a young kid in high school to the indigenous peoples the first nation peoples uh, of that area right and so they became all of his friends because if you experience something like that and it happens to you the only people that really want to hear about stuff like that or can relate to it are first nation peoples because it's part of, mm -hmm. part of history right it's part of their history to believe in those kinds of things or to know those kinds of things exist. And that was really why Mel's connection was there, honestly. Uh, but he began to study their craft and became really capable of it. And this first time I meet him, he's got a, a brain tan deer hide in front of him and he's reaching down with a needle I can barely see. And he is picking up one single bead at a time out of a tray of beads and taking these tiny, tiny beads and then sewing it into position perfectly, not just sewing it perfectly. Uh, and the stuff he was making was just uh, stunning. He told me once that some of his stuff was in dances with wolves. So, and I, I believe like the breast chest, the breastplates and things like that. So uh, that was Mel Riley when I, when I met him. I instantly uh, liked him. I mean, I, there was instantly a connection there. Uh, when I looked, was introduced to Angela and Robin, both these women <clears throat> were sitting facing each other in their desks and they had black cloths draped over their gray army metal desks. Uh, and they were flipping tar tarot cards down in front of them, which to me was like, what, you know, what are you doing? I mean, I recognize them as something I'd seen in a movie. Of course, I didn't know what tarot cards were, but predicting the future of something is how I looked at it. And they're both doing them. And I thought that's not something you see every day in a military organization, along with yeah. rain tan deer hide beads and you know, guys walk around stocking feet and a big giant galaxy painted on a wall. I end up being brought into Fern Gavin who sits me down, the doctor leaves and waits outside. And I sit down with Fern and we have an exchange back and forth. He's like, you know, I'm always impressed that there are young officers willing to give everything up to come and be here. And I thought, 
because I still thought one day I was going to be a general, right? Right. I could see this as like passing through. Uh, and I go, I give everything up. I don't know what you mean by that. Give everything up. Uh, and he says, well, people come here and they kind of disconnect from the rest of their life. They disconnect from the rest of their career uh, because what you're going to do here is going to change you. Your life is never going to be the same if you come here to do this. Do what? <laughs> do what exactly? And that's when he leans back and puts his hands like this. And he goes, well, what we do here, young man, is we, we train individuals to be capable of transcending space and time, right? To view persons, places, right. or things, remote space and time. I'm like, I, I mean, I, I felt like the cushions fell out of the seat. My ass hit the floor. I mean, I really, it, it, it kind of shocked me that, to hear that for the first time. Uh, that it, I think uh, Im images of like the temple in the wilderness where the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, you know, where, where the high priests would uh, of the Israelites would have ropes tied around their ankles as they stepped through into the inner sanctum, because there was supposed to be a portal there, which was an, uh, an interpretation of, what the actual Ark of the Covenant was for, not just transporting tablets, but it, a generator that spun up a portal and the high priest would walk into the portal and if the portal where he was allegedly communing with God and uh, if the portal began to close, the directions to the assistance was pull my ass back before the portal closed so I don't get stuck on the other side, which seems incongruent, but that was part of the story. That actually did happen. They tied ropes on their ankles before they would go into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. But that, I don't know why that came to my head. I just know that I was aware of that and how it was. And so I thought, God, you know, I had read all of these files and then I'm now being told that, that what this is and what this place does. Yeah. I mean, just hearing that kind of shakes one's, I don't know, sense of reality to a certain yeah. extent, right? I mean, you're even just hearing that and knowing that this is a classified organization, it really does exist and they do that here. And so the conversation was short, it ended, I got back, we got back in our Chrysler K car and drove all the way back. And when I got back, the because I said, yes, I, I'd be interested in doing this. But when we got back, uh, the psychologist went in to see Colonel Lackey and tell him what had happened and that I was leaving, um, going to be reassigned. And Colonel Lackey went through the ceiling, as did Bob Glass, the other colonel. Uh, they were really upset that I was going off to that. And it brought me in. And as I said to you, it's like, it was like a stereo ass chewing, you know, from two senior officers, uh, just one right after the other kind of machine gunning me. Uh, and it was, they were saying things like, you have no idea what you decided to do. You, you have no idea you are ruining your career. You will never wash the stain of this off. If you go there, this is nothing but an organization of misfits and freaks. And if you go there, it will, you will never be able to come back into the regular world to do what you do. To which I heard all of that and I understood it and I, I, I bade them forgive me for my decision. But something had happened in Jordan uh, that I just needed to find the answers to about that. And I, this might be the way for me to do that. 
So very reluctantly, they signed the transfer orders for me to move <clears throat> to my second special, special access program, which was at that time codenamed uh, Real Flame or Sunstreak when I came into it. And uh, I started my training program to become a remote viewer, you know, a, a psychic spy for the U.S. government. Now, when you were you first got started, how did they integrate you into the program? Well, when you come in, at, you know, they kind of you know, reintroduce you to people. They don't really say what you're going to be doing. Uh, but what they do is take you over to a file safe. Again, they're all those big file safes. And they open it up and they go, I was told by Dames, he said, <clears throat> okay, this is a the historical file safe meaning everything that has anything to do with from the day that the CIA found out that the Chinese were gathering together clairvoyant children to try to create some sort of intelligence cell using clairvoyant children, that that sparked, you know, the contract, the sole source contract to SRI, and it sparked a lot of other things. So this was, this was Gondola Wish, right? <laughs> where they were looking at adversaries, use of um, ESP, paranormal, um, and other techniques to gather intelligence, I think. It, it could be. That, that's, that nickname, as they're called, or code names, uh, they're actually by in the regulation or in the, yeah, like the, the manual called a, code, a nickname, and then AKA code names. Uh, and so uh, I am aware of Gondola Wish. I'm not sure precisely what Gondola Wish was about. But it very well could have been. Uh, this was a time, you know, when they're talking about that, the development of that. This was a time, again, as I, you know, we we're out of Vietnam. This is post-Vietnam, pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything was a mess. Our military was a mess. Uh, our intel was a mess. Uh, the whole country was in a position of, the whole country was a mess. Uh, what are we going to do, you know? How are we going to reshape ourselves and continue to be the world leader that we were supposed to be? How are we going to reshape our military after Vietnam, which some of the aspects of the military weren't so deeply touched, like maybe Air Force, maybe Navy pilots, uh, maybe Navy brownwater swift boat guys. I, I don't know. But certainly the Army was in shambles, drug addicted, uh, disrespectful, you know, insubordinate, everything. It was just a part. Uh, and I just happened to get into the army around that, you know, shortly after that time. And I just remember as a lieutenant, one of the first things I ever had to deal with was some, some specialist in E4 picking up a rock and, and slamming it into the face of an E7 uh, when the E7 told him to do something. I mean, I didn't know. I was like, what, you know, how are we going to handle that? It, it was something I'd never heard of before. And I tried, you know, anyway, that's a whole nother story, but I'm just trying to paint the picture of what the army was like at that time. Uh, it was in a shambles and it was a lot of people coming together, trying to figure out what are we going to do next? So everything to me is non, it's not coincidental. It seems to me that there was some thing going into position here that caused a lot of things to occur. You had this discovery that the Chinese were doing this. You had parallel discoveries that, uh, that the Russians were doing something similar. Uh, you had parallel discoveries of maybe the Germans and may, possibly the UK. 
and, may, and God knows what else, right? I mean, anybody could have been doing it because right. it seemed like a very inexpensive uh, Intel collection methodology. And if it was real, uh, then that was powerful. So the director of the CIA at the time turned around to Gottlieb, who was the guy who actually ran the MK Ultra program <clears throat> and directed, you know, the first question was, are we working on anything like this? So the answer was no. Uh, and the directive was, then we need to be working on something like this. And so a request for proposals went out. Uh, request for proposal. Oh, anybody. Oh, oh, I want to stop, stop right there. Before we get into this, this is, I think this is a whole separate episode on the history of the Roving Program. Specifically for you, once you got started, um, how did they integrate you into the program? Okay, thanks for the asthma correction again. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. It's okay. It's a complicated historical picture, right? So yeah. It's easy to run off on different rabbit trails. So, yeah, it's good. That, but but uh, to the audience, like, it's extremely intriguing. And I kind of, of didn't, didn't, didn't stop Dr. Morehouse very, very quickly because it was so intriguing. But fear not, it will be covered in the next okay. episode. Yeah. Um, perfectly okay. So how was I integrated? So read the historical book. He pulled up the top file on the first up front of the first drawer. He said, when you get to the last file on the bottom of the back drawer, uh, come see me. Uh, and so that's what I did. It took me several weeks, two weeks at least, to pour over that stuff. Because I read very diligently uh, and precisely because I didn't want to pass over things. But, I mean, I saw some very weird, strange things in there that I just could not understand. even being on some level, uh, a scientist and understanding certain things, right? I, I mean, I'm reading stuff that I, it doesn't compute. It doesn't matter. What was, right? what was the strangest thing you saw like, when you like go through the, the files? viewing detector, you know, uh, that was. Oh, so, so it can be, so, so it can be detected. Well, I'm not sure that, I mean, from a, from a physics perspective, you're talking about microvolts, but mm. the explanation in the, of the device, which was a, allegedly a Soviet device, and there was an actual picture of the device and then a diagram, a wire diagram of how the device was supposed to work. And the way, and with, with text, you know, that was translated text explaining how the device was supposed to work. So this detector was supposed to be in critical briefing rooms and hang in all four corners. And it was supposed to be tuned to a threshold of waveform energy that would be in the room like lights that give off a particular waveform that's why okay so it's, it's so it's so it's the so was it tuned to a particular uh a range of wavelengths of a threshold for a, a high and low threshold meaning everything within the threshold was what would be present in the room like live physical humans uh, if there was a plant if there were lights you know everything else there was a threshold of waveform expression of what was in the room which was very advanced in my opinion for at the, yeah. at the time for what they were doing and then the trigger was any measurement or detection of something outside the spectrum either above it or below the spectrum that then an alarm would sound and the protocol in the in this was that the meeting would terminate and they would move to another place or do something else uh, because it detected the presence of somebody attempting 
whether with a physical device or with a remote viewing device, I mean, human remote viewing in, you know, putting themselves uh, in that room. It's actually not how it works. I mean, as a remote viewer. Well, it implies there's an electromagnetic signature. It does. Right. At a certain frequency of uh, light and maybe a certain amplitude of right. voltage. Right. And before listeners, you know, freak out like, oh, this is crazy. Just hear me. Uh, it's not, that's not how remote viewing works, but they didn't know that then. Right. They really had no idea. They, I mean, they thought very clearly that people were projecting like a, a phantom form that would be there listening somewhere. Uh, and indeed, you know, that's how viewers sometimes describe it, but that's not how it is. When we get into the segment, we'll talk about the physics of this. I'll explain to you what's actually is happening, but I'm looking at stuff like that. Uh, and it goes on and on all these historical files, which were just about the, the movement of the development, you know, the struggles in some ways, who was involved when they decided to start using it. The whole INSCOM thing uh, it talked about grill flame. It talked about uh, General Stubblebine, General Thompson, who was mm -hmm. you know, uh, the director of army intelligence and Stubblebine, the commander of intelligence uh, security. Uh, Support command, yeah, intelligence support, or security security command, INSCOM. I can't remember exactly the acronym. Mm -hmm. And uh, at INSCOM, uh, there were things that were going on. It talked about uh, it talked about the the spoon bending stuff that was going on. So that's one of the reasons it's double line got the nickname General Spoonbender because he was quite literally uh, enamored of all of these things, the idea of them. It was very aligned with the idea of alternative methods of intelligence collection mm -hmm. uh, and was very happy with the fact that he was now kind of in charge of that stuff with his buddy, General Thompson, supporting him all the way. And so you have two star and three star making this happen. Yeah, it's now, very rare. It's, by the way, it's very rare that somebody in that level would uh, risk their reputation on something like this, but they did. Yeah, they absolutely absolutely did. Uh, it was it was interesting, but you could take it back to the same time frame when this was happening, and uh, you know, Representative Charlie Rose, who was a dish, uh, was a Democrat out of North Carolina, he was on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, mm -hmm. and he says in a discussion about remote viewing, as it was being explored starting in '73 and up to the point it was getting ready to be implemented as an intel collection tool he says it seems to me there would be a hell of a cheap radar system and if the russians have it and we don't uh, we are in serious trouble that's that's rose that was his but here's thompson says i never like to get into debates with the skeptics because you don't believe if you don't believe in remote viewing and if you don't believe it was real you hadn't done your homework we didn't know how to explain it but we were so much interested uh, it weren't so much interested in uh, explaining it as in determining whether there was a practical use to it. And that was, uh, that was Thompson, the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence, uh, a three-star major general. So, I mean, these are, you know, this was a, a really crazy stuff. Here's a, uh, that's to me, that was good stuff. That, you know, you're reading things like that. Uh, are these these talks and quotes and carry on, but we'll. I know we're going to discuss this at a later time, but I want everybody listening to understand that this was developing at a time when so much was changing in the military and in 
in the military across the board, and even in the political structure of the United States, and everything we were doing was changing in, in dramatic ways. And so this whole effort to explore whether or not uh, psychic ability was real was developing at a, a very interesting time, a time where it was probably much needed and was more accepted than it ever would have been at any other time in the history of it, of just military intelligence or CIA intelligence, national intelligence. But it's, it also, correct me if I'm wrong, because my history is a little uh, nebulous on this, but didn't the church, is it the church hearings that happened with the CIA where I guess during the Carter administration time period, the CIA lost a a a lot of flexibility in recruiting human human um, because they had hired assassins and, and things like that. So again, I'm just venturing this. Like yeah. there, it, it, it's happening at a time when they're losing critical intelligence capability. So the uh, the the rationale or the um, willingness to accept anything that could help fill that gap would be heightened. Sure. But it's a church hearings, right? Is my, am I getting that correct? I I believe so. I I mean, I honestly don't know. So I, I don't know. To be honest, Sean, uh, I was I had, I'm familiar with the term the church hearings, but at that point, I was not sure. I don't know how that linked up yeah. to what CIA was doing back in the early '70s and up through you know my time in the remote viewing unit. Uh, I saw when we were rangers and my company was deployed down, you know, along the Nicaraguan river, uh, to kind of be a show of force to Sandinistas that, Hey, we're here and uh, we're going to be doing stuff here. And, you know, don't, don't screw with us. And we may come across the river kind of an idea. I know that there were CIA all over the place. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I just, they're pretty obvious when you're down there and you see what they're doing and where they're doing it. You know, uh, I was down on a recon mission one time, just me and, and some of my officers uh, and some officers from another uh, company were down there. And we had a helicopter and we were staying in a team house. And uh, late at night, a helicopter came in and landed and sucked all the fuel out of the fuel bladder. And uh, the pilots jumped up and ran out to, of the UH-1 we were with, ran out there and it said it was a CIA helicopter. It was a civilian helicopter, landed in, sucked all the fuel out of the bladder to fuel up their bird and take off. So we now had limited fuel resources. But so they were present and you saw them and mm -hmm. you were looking, knew what you're looking for, suspected it. They were obvious, but they were everywhere doing all kinds of things. And they were not necessarily always doing them well. So, yeah, there were a lot of problems and stuff. So, but reading all of these files that after I read the files and they, I said, okay, I'm, I'm thumbs up. I've read everything in there. Uh, they said, great. Well, you could, it was like Thursday. We'll start your training on Monday. I said, is there, and you have to listen to this because I set this stage that I'm a trainer, right? I was trained by the finest trainer in the army. And so not my invention. I just became what he was as much detail as I could. Uh, so now I ask, is there a training POI? Uh, they went, well, no, there's no, 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 there's not. Is there a training outline? N nope. Is there a manual that I should be looking at a training manual? You know, it kind of has the standards and tells me I'm going to be going. No, we don't have one of those. 
And I, I walk away, you know, thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, supposed to be training somebody to do this and you don't have anything like that. You have no outline, no notes, no anything. So I, I said, I went to Dames and I said, so how does this get trained? Who? He goes, well, Gabrielle Pettengale is going to be your trainer. She's good. I said, but yeah, well, what format is she following? She'll give you exactly how she was trained. But no notes, no, you know, again, he's like, no, no, we just don't have anything like that. Now I want to stop and say this. Aside from that just being ridiculous, that mm -hmm. that wouldn't have done, because here's the deal. People in that organization had been there, some of them, for 15 years. That's three quarters, you know, right, of a military career. They've been there 15 years doing nothing but remote viewing in that unit. Others, eight years, some like 12 years. You know, so it's like, I just kind of looked at it because... I knew I'm, I, hey, I'm passing through. I have no intention to drop anchor here and finish my career, which now that made sense to me. My mm -hmm. firm said everybody gives everything up to be here. Well, in retrospect, looking at it, it was an easy place to be. I mean, yeah, it was sometimes tough work, but you certainly weren't out in the field. You certainly weren't in a swamp somewhere, right? You certainly weren't closing on something, the enemy or something else. You were in a building going into an altered state of consciousness and spying on stuff. So yeah, I guess it was, I guess it was a cool place to be if you wanted to spend 15 years there, which was to me, I, it, it was one of those unconscionable things. I just couldn't as an army officer mm -hmm. picture that. Anyway, uh, we start my training on, on Monday and Gabrielle Pettengill sets down with me. And uh, I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go into with this, but I will tell you this, that I fought every step of the way with, at, with questions. What do you mean by that? You know, what, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, when I probe, what's supposed to happen? Uh, what do you mean altered state of consciousness? On and on and on and on and on. I mean, I was probably the worst student they ever had. Why? Because I wanted to know the answer to everything and no answers could be provided. The only person who even attempted to give me a quantum mechanical physics explanation of what was happening was Ed Dames. And he's a really smart guy, despite the fact that, you know, he, he would take, a, adopted the moniker of Dr. Doom some time ago, which was preposterous. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he was a smart guy spoke fluent Mandarin Chinese, spoke it, could read it, could write it. Uh, his two sons, Enoch and Aaron, are now physicists themselves. Uh, I think from the University of Washington. But, you know, he's a smart cat. And uh, I liked him when he was just there being what he was being. And, you know, uh, he tried, but he didn't have the lexicon or that he didn't, he had not stopped to think about how to describe those things. These mm -hmm. were people who just accepted that the ability existed somewhere and were willing to attempt to do it. Uh, and then whatever happened, it happened and it didn't matter. No explanation was required. Hence the reason no training or you know, program of instruction, no training outline, no manual. It was just a complete and total acceptance of if you do this, then that'll happen. And if you do that, this will happen. And if this happens, you do something else. And 
back and forth. And I, I was just not the character to do that. Couldn't, I couldn't get wrap my head around that. So after some uh, pep talks by Mel Riley uh, and some stories by him uh, and other things, as well as Dames and, and of course, Gabrielle, <clears throat> they could not explain to me how the coordinate, how the coordinate process worked. So I, you can only imagine a person that has, you know, thinking from a scientific perspective that I don't understand what you're asking me to do. It's not grid. And, and just to be, just to be, just to clarify by coordinate process, you mean the process where someone would give you two sets of four digits and that, that, that's about it, right? They wouldn't tell you anything else about your target. Right. Um, okay. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. Uh, it's, it's appropriate. Uh, yeah, you're, the coordinate processing, coordinate remote viewing, and you know, if I, I don't want to go down the rabbit trail of talking about where it actually developed because uh, it started at SRI International uh, in the service of their contract, and they were using latitude and longitude. And one of the things in their testing of this and, and building of testing human ability, they didn't build remote viewing <clears throat> at all. Uh, is that they the one thing that their that their uh, methodology and their experimentation kind of got questioned about was the fact when I think it was Paralabs and SAIC became came in as auditors to audit their science and their protocols methods. Uh, the CIA did that because the CIA recognized that there would be people questioning, right? And if you only have one researcher, it's easy to dismiss that one researcher. But if you bring in an auditors to look at that researcher's work, if they give a thumbs up with you know, minor corrections, well, okay, you're good, right? Uh, that's why that happened. And it happened multiple times throughout 20 year period of that contract. Yeah. And so their comment was, if you're using latitude and longitude and you keep doing that, and you're, you know, these viewers are looking at targets around here. That's what they're doing. They're not stupid. You know, they recognize the latitude and longitude again. It doesn't matter how, how random you attempt to be at selecting a particular number for a particular box to open up uh, in another random number to select which envelope you're going to pull out of the box, you know, that kind of stuff. And another random number to select who's going to go be the outbounder and who's going to be the monitor. None of that stuff matters if you're giving the viewer information about where they might be looking. Right. So if they start to recognize the latitude and longitude, then it's flawed experimentation, right? So stop that, <laughs> you know? So can you, if you can't use lat long, can you use grid mercator? No, same thing would happen, right? Right. Round pounders recognize, you know, grid zones, et cetera. Uh, and you can't use Cartesian, it doesn't fit. So it has to be a random set of numbers that a person who is aware of the concept of that target assigns those numbers to that target, right? That's how that happens. So, uh, but that was not explained to me then. I had that unraveled for me, you know, after a year or so in the unit uh, that I had started figuring it out myself. I mean, that book that you have, Remote Viewing Complete User's Guide, that actually started off as like not a 399-page manual. 
but it started off as I think it was like 230 to 250, 250 pages. And I wrote that manual because Jack, Dr. Jack Verona, the chief scientist of the CIA, and Fern Gavin asked me to write the manual. Why? Because they knew I was a trainer because I talked about it all the time. And I bitched about there not being a manual and stuff. So in the last three months of my time, uh, they asked me to create that manual, at least in, you know, it didn't have all the illustrations and things in it, but it wrote down the protocol and gave an example and that kind of stuff. And that was put in there. Uh, much to the chagrin of the people that were there 10 years or 12 years or 15 years going, well, who the hell's this guy? It was only in here for, you know, three years. Why is he doing this? And so I don't know if it ever made it uh, to the to the training floor or the application floor or if it just got tossed and somebody put something else in its stead. I have no idea. Uh, but it was there nonetheless. Uh, but back to my first training session, you you step into the remote viewing room, the coordinate remote viewing room, and you step in. It is a room that's maybe... 15 feet long, eight feet wide, you know, standard height of a barracks building. It's completely enclosed in like soundproofing boards mm -hmm. all around the room to the outside, inside, on the door. There's a camera up above that's looking down at you uh, up in the upper left-hand corner, but the red dot on it has been blacked out. Uh, it has a, a set of bar lights over the, you know, the, uh, the I know what you call those again, uh, these just a set of can lights shining down on a gray table that's eight feet long, four feet wide. <clears throat> you sit at a gray table and a black chair with gray carpets, gray walls, gray everything, and a rheostat on the right where you can adjust the light to the whatever level you want it to be. There's a stack of eight and a half by 11 white plain paper there. And there's a whole stack of what were called uh, Ingo pens. I was looking to see if I had one right here. They called them Ingo pens because Ingo Swan is the guy that, that actually developed the protocols of coordinating. And so you sit there, pull a piece of paper over, and you're trying to do anything you can do to kind of like soften your gaze or prepare yourself. Because what's supposed to happen is you are given two sets of four numbers. The numbers are random numbers assigned to the concept of that target. So, oh, there was a podium there that was made specially for the targets because the monitor would come in and go, this is your target. It's on the podium. <laughs> okay, good. It's on in a folder, right? So you're like, awesome. And I'm just a ranger sitting there looking at this thing. And I've had these experiences, but now I'm sitting here. And so you write the two sets of four numbers as they come to you. And you, you write the number, you sit there. Oh no. Okay. We're going to take the coordinates again. Why are we going to take the coordinates again? Because you have to respond with an ideogram. Well, an ideogram is defined in the lexicon of remote viewing, remote viewing as the first graphic representation of the target site of the principal element of the gestalt. That of course is not explained to you, but an ideogram is supposed to be an autonomic response. So you're not supposed to purposely draw it. You're supposed to just basically hear the coordinates, write the coordinates, and then allow your arm to fire across the page, right? And there's a certain posture you can have for it so that you don't, if your heel of your hand is on the paper, 
an ideogram will always look like this, an arch, right? So if mm -hmm. your heel is off of it and the ideogram fires over, there are certain small indicators that, that show in this that, to use the word I hate to use, manifest in, the, in this graphic representation. And then you go through what is called an ABC component decoding. And in the A component decoding, you retrace the ideogram. You trace it over, trace it again, trace it again, you know, until you get the, the sensation of the feeling of the ideogram. So it, it means that irrespective of you calling the paper north, right, the top of the paper north and south, uh, it means if you are truly decoding it as it feels, that what looks on the paper like it's rising up, peaking, dropping down may, if you're decoding it based on how it feels and you allow yourself to do that, it could be across sloping down steeply, rising back up across again. You follow? It can be like that. But it takes a great deal of time and effort to disengage from your conscious analysis of things and to just work with this structure, which ultimately is quite, it's quite, it's very much a miracle. I mean, the fact that Lingo Swan came up with this to me is like one of the great discoveries of, of humankind because it, it's a protocol and it's not something born of some starry-eyed new age guru in a beaded curtain, you know, behind a beaded curtain kind of a thing. This was developed by a guy who was part of the SRI project, project who was one of the test subjects, but who created this protocol that in 79, circa, uh, ended up being migrated into the US Army to be used. And allegedly there was an Air Force program and a Navy program. I can't say whether there was or wasn't. I know that you know I've spent a lot of time with Ingo Swan in his home in the Bowery in New York. I mean, I mean a lot of people dispute who's who were his friends and who wasn't, but I can tell you I I I repaired two of his toilets. So that makes me a pretty good friend. Yeah. Um, you know, so I used to talk to him about all this and how he created it and things. And he had very bizarre, you know, descriptions of it. And he was quite a, an eclectic, strange cat, you know, an amazing man, but a strange, a lot of weird things going on in his head. Uh, but he came up with this thing. And so back to my first exercise, uh, in the A component, you're tracing it. And uh, what am I supposed to do with this? I ask. You're supposed to write down how it feels. It feels like a line on a page. <laughs> nope, missed. Take the coordinates again. And so they make you take the coordinates again. And uh, you, another ideogram, and then an AB, you put A, and it, okay, now you're tracing it. So what is the process there? Uh, because that happened many times, but what's the process? The process is they are attempting to fragment conscious analysis. And they're attempting mm -hmm. to train your conscious mind connected to your unconscious mind in the theory of remote viewing. Your unconscious mind is attached to the holographic matrix field, which is a term that was adopted by an old Jewish physicist by the name of Itzhak Bentov, that I told you uh, uh, earlier. And in this holographic matrix field, the waveform expression of all things, which now goes into you know, particle wave theory and in physics, but the waveform expression of all things is there, which means, it, and it is omnipresent because the waveform expressions of things 
uh, let's take just one simple particle, particle physics uh, uh, explanation. When, when you hear physicists talk about something observed and unobserved, the observed means measured, okay? Mm -hmm. Instrumentation measured. I mean, there are certain kinds of elements that you can actually see uh, in particle and actually see when they, when they become waveform. Uh, there are radioactive elements that do that kind of a thing. But in particle wave theory, it states that anything that is not being measured exists in waveform. And the example given is when you measure it, it gives you a position. So it's observed, it gives you a position. That's position one. Then when you stop measuring it, it, it decoheres, it collapses back into waveform. When it, it is measured again or observed, it it coalesces back up into a position. And the particle wave theory says that, okay, great, when you stop measuring it, it collapses back again. But So, so it's, a, it's a basically like a probability distribution of all the possibilities that where that particle could be. And then when you resolve on it, it the waveform collapses or that probability distribution collapses into well, that. It's not, precise, it's not exactly what they're talking about or in the theory addresses, but your your interpretation could be applied to that. I could see how I could fit that in. But what at this particular case there we're discussing is that from position one to position two, classic physics says that the wave traveled from position one to position two. Quantum mechanical interpretations of this theory state that when it collapses back into waveform, that it travels not from position one to two, by a direct path or by any path it travels by every possible path mm -hmm. people have a tough time to wrap their head around that every possible path that means it is omnipresent right it's on if the waveform travels by every possible path it's not just simply omnidirectional that could be a term used for it but that would imply that there could be it's just going in different paths in many different directions. It travels by every possible path. If the, it travels by every possible path, that waveform expression is omnipresent. It's everywhere, right? So if you have access to that, which we do, if you have access to that and you have learned how to detect, decode, and objectify that, as the theory goes, then what happens is you can actually ascribe to yourself uh, omniscient, right? Because you can have access to the waveform expression of all things. Now, that's a thing a lot of people recoil at because that is something that we ascribe to a deity, not to human beings. But as remote viewers, you begin to explore these concepts that omnipresent. And if all things are energy and energy is everything, and therefore everything can be expressed in waveform on some level, at the sub at the quantum subquantum level, then we too are everywhere, not one place, not over there, not there. We are everywhere that we open expression of ourselves, right? Which comes back to, you know, how can moms, you know, mothers into how can moms know that children are in danger even though they can't see them or hear them, but say have a sense of that, right? Uh, how we call it intuition, but what the heck does that mean? Mm -hmm. Something has to detect and decode that to come up with that understanding. 
oh, there's so many other explanations. And I know this is not the time to talk about that uh, and examples, but that's what you're struggling with as a, as a guy that steps in out of the Ranger Battalion, which is, and that's not told to you. You have to go back to your physics to understand that. Uh, you're trying to get decide, you know, what that waveform, what that ideogram feels like. The B component engages something now that is called a modality of perception, although it wasn't called that then. You probe the ideogram, meaning you put your pin on the ideogram, which is the line, a pin line, uh, and you put your pin on it, and you're supposed to close your eyes and say, determine whether it is natural or it's man-made. How the hell do you do that? <laughs> that was my question. How right. do I do that? And it was, you just have to determine how it feels. Why? Well, like, well, give me an example. And the example used did not compute to me. But let me just explain this. At this point, which wasn't explained then, you're dealing with what are your modalities of perception? There are a number of modalities. There are principal and non-principal. Uh, typically, principles are principal modalities of perception are I hear things, I see things, right? I taste things, I smell things, right? I, the feeling thing is a tactile modality of perception. But there are other non-principles, like some people have digital, uh, so they don't, they don't actually see the color red. Uh, what happens is when they close their eyes, a digital perceiver sees the word red, uh, cold, or the word blue, or the word something else. Uh, there are other non-principal modalities of perception that show up in new viewers. I was fortunate enough to discover that I was, called, I was a visual auditory. So I heard things, and I saw things. I did not smell or taste, and I didn't really feel things at all. Uh, now, what I teach remote viewers is that you have to develop a balance and it's another it's another episode but in order to do that it is established through your intention what you want to be capable of doing what you would not want like to be capable of doing and if you make that your intention going in that you prefer to be more you would like to be more visual than something else it will eventually develop in you this thing up here is an amazing instrument right and so the whole purpose of that, making me take it again, the coordinate again, take it again, each time I stumbled and complained, it was no, there was no argument. Go to the, take the coordinates again. Because they knew eventually, just by going through that, that it's, a, it's called, in Ingo Swan's terminology, it's a feedback. It's a, tr it's a training loop. So every time you stop the process, the conscious mind, which is responsible for taking that waveform expression, and decoding it into a four-dimensional lexicon so that you can then objectify it in two-dimension on the page. So in, in true quantum mechanical speak, you're going from eight-dimensional hyperspace, where if you want to know more about that, look it up, but eight-dimensional hyperspace, holographic matrix field, right? Detecting and then decoding in the conscious mind into a four-dimensional lexicon based on your experience Rolodex, and that's a that is a that's a term people must understand to grasp this, and then objectifying it in a two dimension from eight to four to two. So you lose you're, you're losing information, right? Absolutely. Throughout the process, which is why you have misses, right? right. And that's why it's not 100 percent accurate. 
mm-hmm. and it never has been. And, you know, not in my lifetime will it ever be. Maybe down the road, 100 years, if we keep teaching and developing this, yeah, it, it may be. And, and sometimes your analytical mind imposes overlays, it, it does, which can also. And it does yeah. it you to thought. And I know that there are some of my former colleagues that say, well, I can tell the difference between real raw, pure viewing data and analytical overlay. I'm going to throw the big BS flag on that. No, you can't. And don't, don't tell me you can, because I've seen the, the thing that they fail to realize is that I was the learning guy. I hadn't been, I, I wasn't complacent when I was there. I didn't spend 10 years or 15 years. I read everything. I went through mm-hmm. every file in eight file saves, <laughs> every one of them. So I saw their work. I saw other guys work. I saw people that were there before me. I saw them. I saw all of it because it was there and it wasn't you know, wrong for me to look at it. It wasn't. Uh, that's why it was filed there. Uh, and I also got antsy about stuff on times because uh, sometimes there was an IG inspection coming. You know, those are in the army. Those are always supposed to be a big surprise, but they never yeah, Inspector General, right, right. Inspector General calls. So a team of people are going to come down and go through what the unit's doing, looking at the records. People read onto the program. So what was troubling is that whenever that was getting ready to happen, you'd go home at night and then you'd come back in the morning and you'd find that, uh, you know, Fern Gavin and somebody else from the DIA, uh, Dale Graff, I think, uh, that they were there and they had gone through the files and had pulled files out and shredded them. And you find eight, 10 burn bags lined up there. So you're, you start thinking then, what is so terrible that was in those that they had to shred overnight, right? And have eight or 10 burn bags in there. That was a clue to something strange for me, you know, that, that something had to be destroyed. That happened three times in three years. Did you have any sense of what, in those three times, what sorts of information? My suspicion, and it's only a suspicion, would be uh, that they had to be probably doing something directed by the CIA, like, you know, targeting, uh, targeting U.S., you know, members of politics, politicians, or maybe financiers or something else, right? Could have been targeting people like that. That would have been one of the really big illegal things because that's outside their charter. In fact, this charter specifically states they can't do that. But if they were yeah. us in that way, any investigation in the files would have to address something like that, right? They, so they wouldn't want that to be there. Um, and there's no telling how often that happened because many times in operational targets, meaning actual intel targets that you were working. Sometimes you would work them, do your 90 minutes of work, prepare your session summary, compile all your sketches and turn them into the operations officer. And you never see, you never see them again and you never get feedback on it, which was contrary to the training process. The training process always gave you feedback to show you what you did. Sometimes if Fern Gavin got involved, he would actually put down quantifiable attributes. In other words, measurable attributes, um, especially for me because I was new. So, and I was always asking for a standard. So he would take a target and he would put down a hundred things that he could think of that should be present in the principal element of the gestalt of that target. And so you do your session, all your verbal sensory data, all your visual sensory data. And then he would hand you your feedback and go, okay. Now, you know, here's, it was always a, you know, a Xerox 
copy of a photograph that was your feed. Like a mimeograph, one of those mimeograph machines in blue. Sometimes it, it was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, no, the old Xerox machines, right? As they called them all, not yeah. copy Xerox. And they, they would be so dark, you'd be like, what the heck? Yeah. You know, and then, so you would just like take the quantifiable attributes. You see what it said it was, Dome of the Rock. So you'd, you'd go over to, you know, you go to the library and look in the encyclopedia for pictures of what was there. Nowadays, I mean, when we do training, it's uh, in, a, in a class. I mean, there's elaborate video feedback that's provided. Uh, and then again, there's elaborate written feedback with links to places to go look at it even further. And then there are always anywhere from 150 to 200 quantifiable attributes. The reason the quantifiable attributes are there is because if the viewer can look at their session and go, I saw that. I saw that, you know, I got that color, I got this, I got that taste, I got that smell, you know, I sketched that kind of a dimension, I sketched that kind of a thing. They can establish a kind of a statistical validity of their session, right? They can look at that and say, these are things that should have been present there, and these are the things that I saw or sensed, rather, is more proper term. These are the things I perceive, that I decoded, that I objectified. And if they do that, they can very quickly say, well, I'm a 23%, you know, accurate this time. Or I've had students, you know, be up in the 80 percentiles uh, and everywhere in between. And people improve. They move up on one, down on the other. And the question is why? The, well, there's a lot of reasons. One can be the performance cycle. Uh, the other can be you find that based, based on every human being diff being different in many different ways, that there are some targets that just the emotional makeup of a person does not allow them to detect, decode, and objectify efficiently. There's something about it that, that this, there's a, an ability within each of us to kind of shut that down or filter it out based on experience. What, are we, what is part of your experience Rolodex? What sort of things would filter? Are they upsetting things? Are they things that you're just bored by? Or is it any number of... It can be any of those things, but typically what shows up is some sort of an emotional filter towards something. Uh, and, every, and every target are carefully selected to be, you know, these are targets that are picked so that you're not, and these are not the kinds of targets I was asked to look at you know, like Auschwitz or something like that. These are, we're not trying to do that. We never would. Uh, these are targets like Taj Mahal. I mean, it's a mausoleum, but it's built around a love story, which may or may not be true. Who cares? The object is it's a beautiful place with amazing dimensional architecture and amazing color and smells and sounds and, right, the, 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 the big main gate, the, the Taj Mahal, the mausoleum itself, the, the sarcophagi, you know, uh, they're down below. Uh, it's just, it's an amazing place. The ornate, intricate stuff. And viewers sketch that stuff. I mean, some of them get back and, and draw the minarets. Uh, some of them get the giant, you know, onion dome in the center. Uh, others get the gate. You know, these are all, it's the gestalt is the entire compound. The principal element of the gestalt, which is theoretically right where they start to open their perception, is, of course, uh, the mausoleum itself. And some get all of that. Some of them wander off in their mind, you know, to start detecting and decoding reflecting pools and fountains and, you know, trees and 
that kind of stuff. So how, how does this how does this data appear in your mind's eye? So in other words, like are you just seeing like a rapid flush of images, sounds, yeah. sights? Are you seeing like a moving, living, breathing? You know, just give me a sense. Or is it different for everybody? Yeah, it all depends on your modality of perception, and it also always depends on how that modality of perception kind of manifests for you. I'll explain it this way. In the back to the ideogram, the B component decoding, natural or man-made. How do you come up with that? Now, so uh, you know, an auditory viewer might close their eyes and put their pen on the on the ideogram and hear natural. They might hear that something like something speaking to them, natural. It's them, but that's how they're decoding it because they're a, a auditory right perceiver. That how do you filter out though so this is something that's always been difficult for me is it's very difficult for someone i don't think i've ever been capable of meditating right because i have so many thoughts and images and you've been i mean you probably sense this by talking to me yeah right like i can jump from things and i i frequently have to slow to talk because there's so much like again the speed of thought it's yeah. hitting me so how do you know what is an uh, what is real and what is an artifact of your imagination? Well, you're doing what every new remote viewing student does, which is you're trying to analyze as you're going through the process. And what you learn is that in order to be successful in the process, you must be capable of disengaging this analytical aspect of yourself. The, a remote viewer doesn't care. They, I mean, a good remote viewer gets that you have to say, I don't care. I, I'm just going to put down what comes. I'm going to put down what data comes. I'm going to work within the structure. I'm going to do what the structure says. And if my if my analytical mind engages and starts to assemble data, which it does at the speed of thought, you go, this is a Taj Mahal. <laughs> or it gives you, you know, it gives you something like that. It's called AOL Taj Mahal. All right. It might start with Big Ben, <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. of minarets. So your conscious mind, based on his experience Rolodex at the speed of thought, takes that waveform expression and goes, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And if it's never seen or even thought about the Taj Mahal before, it goes to the next best thing that it has in the experience Rolodex. The experience Rolodex is compiled of everything you've ever seen, heard, read, thought of, tasted, smelled, you know, drunk, uh, touched, et cetera, et cetera. And if it doesn't have anything in that, Rolodex to decode it into language, right? Into four-dimensional language. It'll find out, it'll pick the thing that it thinks works best. Big Ben. So now you get an image of Big Ben. And so you have to declare that as AOL Big Ben. Get back into the session. You don't give a damn that AOL Big Ben came. Your job is to pick this place apart. So you get mm -hmm. back in colors, textures, temperatures, taste. That's how that works. But that's how you shut off the analysis. But it takes practice and it takes multiple sessions, even in a class, for people to understand how they have to disengage. The structure has a self-correcting aspect. If you follow the structure, it will keep this analytical overlay, which is a category of data, right? Big Ben in relation to the Taj Mahal it has what? It's structure. Tall, it's rigid, right? It's pointed. It, you know, it's it's 
that's the things that you're looking for. Those are dimensional aspects of something uh, that match target data. And that's how new viewers start to perceive. That's how the, the opening of the aperture of perception, you know, graduates itself. You, you make mistakes like that. And then when you get your target feedback, your brain is going, your conscious mind going, oh, now I see, right? And now it's looked at the whole Taj, you know, as it's circling, as the feedback circling around going inside and your conscious mind, the experience Rolodex is what? It's now relating that waveform to what it actually, you know, this is what I was perceiving. And oh yeah, now I know why I got Big Ben. Uh, it's, a, it's a process you have to go through to get to that. But you ask the question of, how do you perceive? So back to the B component, which people are like are probably going, let's get to the B component. The B component, if you're not a, if you're an auditory perceiver, you might hear it. If you're a tactile perceiver, uh, people can put their pin on this ideogram. And if their modality of perception is tactile, feeling, right? They get a feeling of if I push, if I put pressure on the pin, a tactile perceiver, this will sound weird, but just listen to me they will actually get the feedback between what they're pushing on. It's just pen and paper, right? There's nothing magical about it. They're not really dipping into this target somewhere. It is how your unconscious mind is detecting, how your brain is decoding, and how it's teaching you or telling you to objectify. Think of it as how a sculptor can feel their work, right? Of how a painter can feel the brush strokes and the texture that are there. It's the same thing. It's a connection between here and, and the, on the paper that happens that says it feels rigid. Oh, rigid, man-made. It feels soft and spongy. Oh, that's natural, right? So you only get to pick one. <laughs> you can't put two. So whatever first comes to you is what you put down, which is a struggle. I'm just like you. I mean, my, it's hard for me to turn my brain off at night. Uh, mm -hmm. It's hard for me to stop thinking about things. Often I try to sleep, I get back up, I come in, I work some more, I try to sleep some more. Uh, it's, it's very frustrating. I know exactly how I feel. But in that situation, after pounding my head against this wall of learning this thing, uh, I finally you know, got to the point. I actually asked, I said, look, I don't know if I'm in any kind of an altered state of consciousness. And you know, I keep hearing that talked about. So what the hell does that mean? I'm asking. Yeah. Her. And uh, because I go, there's no brainwave trainers here. There's not like an EEG machine over here. How do you know you're in the alpha brainwave state? How do you know? Well, we don't know. So we let each person do whatever they want to do. Paul Smith, listen, listen to heavy metal music. I was like, I don't understand that. Heavy metal music, but then I went into uh, beats per minute theory, and I actually looked it up, and then I took beats per minute in music and multiplied it by to get actually. You, there's a simple formula you can use to turn beats per minutes into hertz rates in music. Now, when you look at the hertz rates established, they're all different based on different beats per minute, but something like heavy metal music, which you would think would just be like scraping your fingers on a chalkboard. If you just release and go into it and go with what it translates to in a Hertz rate, it puts you into a Delta brainwave state. I bet your classical music does the exact same thing because heavy metal music is actually, is that right? 
It does. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it does. It's uh, heavy metal music is actually more related to classical than you would think. People who tend to like heavy metal music also tend to like classical. Oh yeah. Uh, so look, it's uh, let me see. I've got all my beats right here. I've I've done a lot of translations on it. So uh, where's a good classic metal? I mean, a, a good uh, let's like say waltz. So a waltz is 84 to 90 beats per minute. That translates into 1.4 to 1.5 hertz. And if you look at the brainwave scale, that, that, that 1.5 to 5 hertz takes you into delta. That's like a sleep cycle. Yeah. Brainwave sleep cycle. Now you go back to, let's go to a drum and bass, right? Drum and bass is 174 beats per minute. Anyway, it can actually be like 165 to 185. But so that goes to 290 uh, to 3.08 hertz. That's delta again. Delta for drum and bass. Jungle, jungle, you know, these are all uh, rave kinds of things, rave kind of music. I don't know if that's the correct thing, but jungle, 1.55, I mean, 155 to 190. And it goes 2.58 to 300 to 3 hertz. Again, delta. I mean, it, it's phenomenal when you go through this thing. And then when you go back down to like the salsa, a salsa is is 3.0 to 5 hertz, right? Jive, or let's go to another one like you're talking about. Let's go to, I don't know, Foxtrot. Uh, 112 to 120. So that takes you into, that's got to be in the lows. That's got to be like somewhere around 1.5 up, upwards right? Just calculating in my head. So you're going to again be in a Delta, a sleep brainwave state. So I didn't dis discover this until actually when I teamed up with Alexander Zulia, who was the, the, he was the last Soviet pilot to defect from the Soviet Union and fly into Turkey with a MiG, with a brand, you know, with a, with a MiG, fully loaded MiG. That's a funny story. Uh, Ask me and I'll tell it to you sometime. But Alexander Zuyev and I met at DIA. He didn't speak any English, but we became friends. Just, I don't know, making hand and arm signals, I guess. And uh, I met him again years later. I was, in, I was in Maho Bay in the Virgin Islands. And I was teaching, lecturing on human possibility and human promise and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I look over in, this, in the back of the, back of the lecture and and there he is. <laughs> I mean, there he is. And he has now, uh, you know, he sold the, the CIA paid him or the government paid him. I didn't know this either. Did you know we paid defectors 10% of their, of their evaluated intelligence value? No, but it's probably worth it. Sense, right? Yeah. yeah, he defected and they used his tactics and other things to during the first Gulf War One. He was there, you know, helping the pilots understand what, because that's what the Iraqis were flying for MiGs. And, and that his intelligence value for that estimated in, in terms of millions of dollars, basically. And, and uh, he was now no longer working for the agencies or anything else. And he was a millionaire living down in Miami. <laughs> and he heard that I was going to be in Maho Bay and showed up. And now he spoke English. Uh, it was, you know, it was many years later. but. Hmm. Yeah, uh, but he, 
to answer my, the question of why that I learned that uh, from him is because he had turned himself into a disc jockey. I mean a, you know, I mean a DJ seriously like a, a rave DJ. Like so, Tisto or yeah, music and stuff. And he called him say, himself DJ Nostradamus, which I thought was like the funniest thing. This former Soviet MiG pilot, now DJ Nostradamus, you know, down in the Virgin Islands playing at these various clubs. And I asked him, I said, what the hell? What's the DJ Nostradamus? Where'd you come up with that? You know, he goes, he goes, uh, it's simple. He goes, uh, it's all about the beats per minute. He goes, the beats per minute move people. It affects them. Because it affects them in a, in a physiological way and it follows with a psychological way. And he says something very, very interesting. He said, DJs are going to be the shaman of the new millennium. Interesting, right? Yeah, it made yeah. pilot, you know. <laughs> so, so, but you, what, what delta wave st- or not delta wave? What um, brainwave state do you want to be in? Ideally, for remote viewing, is it alpha wave, uh, for delta wave, remote viewing, alpha brainwave state, which is eight to fifteen hertz. So, how do you get there? Well, if you go deeper, uh, the theory would be if you go deeper, what will bring you back up into that range will be your conscious maneuver through the structure right it's called you'll you'll end up porpoising right you'll come up you go down you'll come up you go down you'll notice something you'll go back down or you'll notice something and come back up uh and so this is where the you know the hemi-sync programs and other kinds of things came into being which uh robert monroe did not invent hemi-sync hemi-sync was actually first explored or first understood i think in my God, it was either 1780s or the 1830s or something like that. There was a uh, there was a Eastern European uh, audiologist who discovered that by setting a person in a chair and putting these paper cones that went all the way out several feet, like six feet, and they would hit. They would have assist. He would have an assistant, and what they would do is they would hit two different. Uh, two different uh, tuning forks and put them in the wide end of the cone. So as it came down to the ear uh, and what he was doing, doing was measure, measuring uh, changes in heart rate, uh, observe, you know, observation of pupil dilation or, uh, or uh, constriction. Uh, he was also measuring, uh, you know, taking pulse rates and things like that. I mean, it was a long time ago, so it wasn't really sophisticated, but that was when, Hemispherical synchronization, you know, two different frequencies being played into the ears uh, would in some way change or transform the physiology of the human being. Uh, It went through many other studies and progressions all the way up. In the unit, none of this was used. There were some hemisync tapes, but they were completely for other things. So I asked Fern if there was something I could do to go learn to get to an altered state of consciousness. And he set or allowed me to go to the Greater New England of Greater New England Academy of Hypnosis, Genia. Uh, so I went for a four-day seminar on self-hypnosis uh, or hypnosis, which I was intrigued by it and affected by it. Uh, not that they could, you know, like set me on fire and I would be okay or or you know, tell me I was set on fire. I, I wasn't that 
susceptible or receptive to it. But I do know that I cha- my physiology changed in the doing of it, right? I could feel my heart slow and feel my body relax. And I thought, okay, this will work for me. Now, I want to jump ahead in this process and say, the time where I first discovered uh, an ability to do measure and what the effect of that would be of brainwave states was uh, about two years into the program, Mel Riley and I were selected to go uh, to the Office of Congressional Inquiry or Investigation. There's a, there's a building in, in DC that, at, that is employed. Everybody in there, what they do is research, testing, you know, exploration of things that people want to bring to Congress or to congressmen, right? And this particular guy, his name was Dr. Julian Gresser. Uh, and he was a guy that introduced this concept of thought incubation, which I now teach. Uh, thought incubation was, was an alternative to brainstorming, and that's what he was bringing in. I don't know if you ever had to experience this, but when I came into the Army, organizational effectiveness was a part of what I was that transition out of the 70s, right? So they sent guys off to officers and NCOs to become OE certified. That became their secondary specialty. So what these people, this was, this was so frustrating because they would bring, you know, assemble the battalion officers, right? And then all the NCOs would go over the NCO and you'd have the officer, this captain up in front being the facilitator of this, uh, of this uh, organizational effective sensing session. Like, okay, what's going on that's wrong in the battalion? Yeah. Do anything yeah. like that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I took it next I took it next level. So we were having I, – I shouldn't tell this story. It's pretty, pretty um, – I, I don't manipulate is the right term, but there, like, uh, what our troop was like – I was the XO, and our troop was having a lot of um, – was griping a lot, right? So they wanted to do a sensing session. So I said, uh, the first sergeant did. So I just told the commander, the first sergeant, I'm like, look, we can do that, but let's just, let's time it so that we we do it on like a Thursday. Cause we were going to win the, I think the company was going to win the Tiger Jack award that afternoon. So like, let's get all this stuff out. And then, and then we win the Tiger Jack award, like problem solved. And that's what they, that's what we did, and it worked. It was it worked perfectly. Like there were no no issues after that, right? Because I can tell you that the sensing sessions suck, and there was nothing good that ever came out of them. But right, you know they do them, and I I can tell you this too that the problem with brainstorming sessions like that uh, end up with well, first they go through the sensing session, right? What's what's screwed up? What's not screwed up? What do we do well? <laughs> We'll put stuff down. What do we do? What do we do really poorly? You know, what do we do sort of okay? All that stuff would be up on, you know, butcher paper pinned up on the wall. Now for AARs, that, that stuff's like gold. It's great. But for like, you know, cold, like sensing yeah. sessions, but, but go ahead. I didn't mean to effectiveness because they would happen like, they would happen quarterly. And the idea was that this was the way you built high performing units as opposed to reactive units. That was the theory behind it. And it was came out of much of the development exploration of just human performance factors, right? An understanding of what makes people tick, because that was Delta Force concept paper. I mean, the the think tank. It was, you know, came out of Channon's First Earth Battalion. All these other things, which was 
how do we just, you know, how do we figure out how people really are operating here? What hmm. makes better soldiers and better units and better leaders, et cetera? Well, those organizational effectiveness things were really ineffective because all, it, they are brainstorming sessions that have a, a disproportionate sprinkling of power in there. The battalion commander is not going to acquiesce to something some second lieutenant comes up with and throws up on the board as, here's how we improve your command, right? Uh, and uh, introverts, which there are those in the army as well as anywhere else, find that in, a, in, a, in a, an environment where extroverts are fighting and competing to get their crap up on the board, right, to be considered, extroverts throw something out and they get shot down and theirs never makes it up on the butcher paper or it gets lined out very quickly afterwards. So introverts then do what introverts do, which is shrink back and say, okay, business as usual, nobody really cares, right? They're all, all the extroverts are going to decide. And so all the extroverts flurry and scramble to get all their crap up on the board. And guess what? The battalion commander decides what's going to be done and what's not going to be done. And then it's all over and everybody walks away going, well, that was very frustrating. It didn't really reveal anything except people are pissed off. And that, as it always is, the guy that's in charge wearing the oak leaf is the guy that's going to decide what we're going to do. So, yeah, I mean, what it is, is it's it's like a griping session and it, it allowed the only really beneficial thing it does is it allows people to gripe and just and to vent and that's about it, right? Yeah. Now, if you're a good commander, you'll take the advice and feedback and, and use it. But, you know, a lot of people are, are not good commanders. I saw <laughs> you. You ever did, even though they were trying to play the role, right? Uh, they were trying to play the role of that. I saw guys like who <gasps> went on to be a general. I saw that of Emory Mace who went on to be a general. Uh, I saw that of, of Wes Taylor who went on to be, uh, be a general uh, and led, you know, the attack on Grenada. Uh, I saw that, and I, and I even saw it in General Lure, who I respect above and beyond any of the officers I ever served with. Uh, I saw him uh, be willing to accept certain levels of criticism and unwilling to accept others and affect change in minor ways based on that input, because he really wanted to be a team player with that. But my, my bottom line with that is that was how we were doing things. And so here mm -hmm. comes the aggressor, right? Dr. Julian Gresser, JD, uh, and he comes in with this thing and he's trying to get Congress to bite on that is set, it's called thought incubation as an alternative to brainstorming. And what he did was he put, Mel Riley said it right to my right, we were, uh, there was a, a daisy chain cable that came around to each of us and off this daisy chain cable came uh, this big thick cable out, there would be this, these outputs and the outputs had a galvanic skin response uh, thing. There was, a, there was an output that came to two probes, two sensor probes, uh, that you had to put this abrading gel on and conductive gel. One went you know, just above the occipital protuberance on the, the hat rack on the back of your head, and one went to the right temporal lobe, and you had this big band around your head. And then the wire came down and went into the big cable. And you also had a wire coming out to the jack that you could plug in a headphone, and the headphones on like you are, and you had a screen in front of you. Now, 
what would happen is there would be a decision about a about he would toss out about 10 questions and he'd say okay we're going to thought incubate thought incubate uh you know one of these questions but he would also point out to people that some he had trick questions in there so people would pick, you know say well let's do that one because it sounded juicy right and he would say okay let's pull this one out he goes now now is this one question or five questions people would be like what is it one question or five questions? <laughs> so people like, everybody's like, well, I can see three, you know, I can see two, one, you know, no, it's one. You know, the other one's like, no, it's five. And, and so Gresser would then turn around and go, it can easily be five questions. And he'd show you why the, you know, one question connect, contained actually five questions. And his teaching point there was garbage in, garbage out. If you go in with some nebulous, broad brush question, you're going to come out with a bunch of nebulous, broad brush information. So mm -hmm. the thought incubates something. You have to be capable of distilling the question down to a, to a definite right question. And we did that. We learned that. It was fun. It was something I'd never explored before, but it was amazing, and I've never forgotten it since. So we'd have one question, 10 people, and the whole idea was as you are with your headset on and you're watching, you had to go to a theta brainwave state to be able to, in a place where you are devoid of judgment, unaware of your environment, devoid of self-doubt, self-analysis, the theta brainwave state was where the door of, you know, of, uh, of the three-dimensional perception theoretically is closed. So with the headset on, you get the, the guy with the big computer over there, which at this time was pretty amazing that they could do this. This guy starts the program and he, each person is being monitored separately on his big monitor, right? Or a series of monitors. And the program that was developed is mapping individual brainwave states. So as you close your eyes and as you try to relax, as you go into your self-hypnosis thing, what happens is when you go from gamma to gamma's got one tone and there's a, I can't remember the exact color of the screen, let's say red. And when you drop from gamma to beta, the screen changes to like orange and you get a different tonal feedback in your head, right? And you, gotta, you, gotta, you could change the volume on it, right? To as low or high as you wanted it. And then- So, so your, your, your senses are getting feedback and letting you know what each what each brainwave state feels like for you right this is critical to understanding this because if you're sitting in front of some yogi in a you know lotus position telling you what a brain a theta brainwave state feels like that is like a copy of a copy of a copy because you're accepting that what he's saying is how you should feel so your focus is on trying to make yourself feel like he felt or as he described it. And that does not put you in a theta wave brain state or, or theta brainwave state. And he's telling you what somebody else told him. You follow me? So it just ends up being a, an interpretation on top of an interpretation on top of interpretation for, for as long as it goes. So the only way you will ever know what kind of brainwave state you're in is this thing Julian Gresser did, and 
we sat there and you could feel your body. And as the tone went from beta down to alpha, you could feel the physiology in your body change. But if you focused on it too much, it would go back up into gamma, right back up into, uh, uh, into beta and you get a tone change and a screen color change again. And you got to the point where your, your eyes were closed, but you could court, sort of see the screen change, you know, through the lit, through your eyelids, uh, it's like just the, the light changing. And then you're hearing the tone. So now you're like, you just let go, let go, let go, go deeper, let go, let go. And you, then you'd feel yourself go from beta back to alpha again. And if you heard somebody cough, you'd go back up to beta again, then back descend back down into alpha and then ultimately into data. And in data, you've already, it's called thought incubation. So you don't have to be consciously aware of the question. Why? Because you already know what the question was. It's logged into your biological brain already. Mm -hmm. Saw it on the board. You spoke it out loud, right? If you want to objectify it right in front of your face, which was, as I recall, part of the exercise. But now you're descending into these brainwave states and you're getting feedback as you're going. So you sort of, you're locking into your brain, right into your physiology, what it really means to go to that brainwave state. Your body itself is memorizing that. You know, it's putting that into you know, its cellular memory, into its muscle memory, into its respiratory memory, circulatory memory, right? Everything is saying, oh, okay, this is what this is. That is the most powerful experience, I will tell you, that I had ever had in that realm. Because doing that for a week, when I came out of there, I looked at Mel and I said, we got to carry this back to the unit. I mean, we need to have an EEG machine because after this was all over, each session, they would give you a, a map, a printout for each person that said, here's how long you were in gamma. Here's when you dropped into, because it was an hour exercise. How long you went from gamma, when you dropped to beta, how long you stayed in beta? Did you go back up to gamma? If so, how long? When you dropped to alpha, how long you stayed in alpha? Did you go back up to beta, back down again? How many minutes you were in each place, right? Up, down, up, down. And you, your first few were horrible. I mean, you couldn't stay in the brainwave state you were targeting. You kept porpoising, was the term, the up back up into another higher brainwave state sometimes up through two thresholds. So you'd get to theta, but you become consciously aware of it and you rock it right back up through alpha and in, into beta again, sometimes piercing into gamma again. And so it was such an education, right? An education for me to see that. So now when we teach, right, uh, we use a like on the book you bought, there's a link on there that you can download the MP3 of that. And I will tell you how that was audio engineered. It was audio engineered using a hemi-sync mix that we knew, uh, we knew would get you to an alpha brainwave state for a coordinate remote viewing uh, audio. We also embed, uh, you know, that's the binaural beat that's there uh, called hemi-sync by... Robert Monroe and others down the train, down the chain of investigation research of that all the way back into the 17, 1800s, right? And then uh, you have also pink noise in there, not white noise, but pink noise, because it's at a, at a frequency that helps you 
lose your awareness of external ambient noises that might show up, like a dog barking or something else. Uh, that's why that's there. And then there is a yogic relaxation, breath meditation, sort of a guided process to take you through. Now, does it work? Well, after we audio engineered it in, uh, in Longmont, Colorado, with a friend of mine who was an audio engineer, uh, we tested it. Uh, we ended up uh, getting an EEG machine from one of his physician friends and we brought it over, got, we're told how to hook it up and do it. And uh, I think he actually had a tech that was there working with us. And out of uh, 10 people, nine of them, if they, if they weren't, in other words, you had to have people that weren't listening to it the, for the first time, because if you're listening to it for the first time, you're actually analyzing it. So they had, we gave them copies of the CD in those days, or, no, or CD, or, it was CD, and gave them copies of the CDs and said, listen to this every night or every chance you get, not while driving, but anytime you can get into a relaxed state, listen to this at least 10 times. So if they're listening to it 10 times, what starts to happen is they stop consciously listening to it, right? stop analyzing the words they just it's already inculcated as tony robbins would say in their head right inculcated and so uh then uh, we tested them and nine out of ten were went straight into an alpha brainwave state the other went to a shallow beta you know down or i'm sorry deep beta and i guess if they had longer they probably could have pierced the threshold and gone into uh, alpha so that's why those audio programs are now used. Because, mm -hmm. and, and if somebody really wants to get to that place with it, uh, there are unfortunately no brainwave trainers that I know of that do these things. It needs to map individual brainwaves. They don't need to interpret them into relaxed, you know, or aware, relaxed, and sleepy. That's just stupid. I mean, people don't need that. Uh, it needs to say you're in gamma, beta, alpha, theta, delta. It needs to be able to map that. And it needs to map it over time, right? Mm -hmm. So you know where you were in each one of these and when you were there. And it should give you some sort of feedback. It should give you tonal feedback or visual feedback. Tonal is most important. Uh, visual, if you're staring at an iPhone screen, it's probably going to be difficult to get to a theta brainwave state. So uh, it would be much better to have it as uh, tonal, I think. I'm sure I'm certain of it. But if you could do that, you could really train people to get to these different brainwave states, which would be, that's the goal of transcendental meditation. That's the goal of meditations of all sorts. That's the goal of you know, hypnosis, relaxation, whatever the case might be. I just think that would be an extraordinarily powerful tool to be able to know where you were. And you have to do that in order to know for yourself what it feels like really to be in that brainwave state. So there's nothing off the shelf today that does that that you're aware of? Nothing that I'm aware of except EEG machines, you know, and yeah, those right. 3,000 cheap ones. All right. Um, we'll see everybody again in the next episode. Thanks again, David. Bye, everybody. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.